0: Uh, those of you with whom I'm acquainted, uh, I know many of you prayed for me and my family as we uh, traveled, uh, Norfolk and Raleigh and then Florida and then back home. And so thank you for your prayers, for our safe travel and a, a refreshing and, and restful time. And I was encouraged and excited to be invited to come back and uh, and be with you all for a time as we're going to be working our way through the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Over the next several uh, several weeks, since we're uh, jumping midstream into the book of Hebrews, let me see if I can give you something of an introduction, a little bit of a running start, uh, more the context of uh, chapter 11. And let's see if I can do that without preaching chapters 1 through 10 in uh, the next uh, five minutes. Uh, but As you know, the the early believers who were preached the gospel were primarily Jews. Uh, The majority of those who first became Christians were Jews who embraced Jesus as the Messiah and uh, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophets and law. And then certainly Gentiles by scores were, were added to the company of believers over time. Uh, But as these Jewish people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, they not only suffered persecution from the Roman government because of calling Jesus Lord and not Caesar Lord, they also began to experience pressure and persecution and opposition from their fellow Jews. Jews viewed other Jews who became Christians as sellouts and blasphemers and backsliders. They viewed these Jews who believed in Jesus as turning their back on their Jewish religion and heritage and they were angry, parenthesis, see the Apostle Paul and his response to Jews who came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so they experienced incredible persecution and uh, opposition and affliction. Some Jews even had their fellow Jews imprisoned. And so as the opposition uh, increases and becomes relentless, these Jewish believers in Jesus uh, began to waffle and essentially start to cave in under the pressure of the horribleness of persecution and opposition, maybe even from cousins or aunts or uncles or relatives and how horrible that would be. And so in the face of this opposition uh, from their blood relatives and other Jews, they started having second thoughts about all of this. Is it worth it? You know, can't we just all get along? You know, that, that sort of thing. And they began to kind of back off of their faith and following the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the author of Hebrews who writes to them in this context, urging them, encouraging them, pleading with them, in some cases in the book, you'll notice, warning them not to leave off or to give in or to give up in following uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says to them in so many words, brothers and sisters uh, of the Jewish faith who have come to saving faith in Jesus, take a step back, you know, take a deep cleansing breath, you know, and just remember again who Jesus is and remember why you have believed in him and why it is worth it not to let go of your faith. And beginning in chapter 1 from verse 1 and then uh, straight through, the writer is encouraging his fellow Jewish believers, reminding them that faith in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob under the old covenant was good. But faith in Jesus under the new covenant is better. And a lot of commentators have called their commentary on the book of Hebrews the book of better things. And so he begins by saying that Jesus is better than the prophets, that the prophets spoke of the one who was to come. Jesus is the one of whom the prophets spoke. He is better than angels because he himself is the uncreated God, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Angels are great and glorious, but they are created beings. Jesus is the creator. He is better than Moses. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant as a servant of God. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant as the son of God. Not a servant serving in the household, but the son of the master. Of the house. Jesus is better than Joshua. Joshua led Israel into the promised land of temporal rest. But Jesus has secured for us a better promised land that will afford us not one day a week rest, not temporary rest, but eternal rest from all our labors and all our works. And then moving on to worship, he's a better priest. The writer says that we have these earthly priests. It's almost uh, undoubtedly that the earthly temple was still standing uh, when this was written. And so they're very familiar with the whole Jewish ritualistic sacrificial system. And so these earthly priests are obviously temporary. There's a turnover of priests. Um, year after year after year. And also, they are imperfect themselves. Jesus is a better high priest. First of all, because there's not going to be another one. He's always the same. He'll always be there. He's also perfect. He can perfectly sympathize with our weaknesses as a faithful high priest. And then the sacrifices. How many tens of thousands of millions of animals sacrificed over the centuries, again and again and again, sacrifice for sin, sacrifice for sin. And the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is better than the animal sacrifices. They pointed to him as the final, perfect, sufficient, once for all time, never to be repeated again, sacrifice. And so as priest and sacrifice, Jesus is both the offerer and the offering an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then Jesus promises us a better promised land than the promised land that the Israelites entered, and also a better worship center. Uh, Jerusalem, uh, the glorious on earth, you know, was uh, the heart's desire of every Jew. And the writer here says, yeah, but that's not it. That's not, where we're, that's not the final goal. It's the new Jerusalem, the eternal Jerusalem, the glory of God's people forever and ever. And so the writer of Hebrews says that the old covenant, as good as it was, was temporary, imperfect, preparatory, and predictive. But the new covenant with Jesus Christ that we've embraced is permanent, final, and clear. Now we can read the text. And hopefully it will help to make sense of it. And so he says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Hold the phone. Haven't we heard that somewhere before? (laughs) Yes, in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul cites the same text and the same words, saying the righteous shall live by faith. The writer of Hebrews invokes it here, calling to mind, putting at the forefront of their consciousness the glory of the gospel, which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if he shrinks back, oh, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now the table is really set for Hebrews 11. And there's going to be a reference to Enoch and Abel. But for our purposes today, I'm going to skip over those verses in the reading because we're going to come back to those next Lord's Day. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Uh, There's an old saying, I suspect some of you, maybe many of you have heard this, Uh, it used to be, Some things are better caught than taught. And that is the strategy that I think the writer of Hebrews is employing in Hebrews chapter 11. What he's going to do is he's going to tell us what is the essence of faith. But then the whole rest of the chapter is going to be examples of faith. Or to put it another way, he's going to tell us the definition of what it means to have faith. And then he's going to give us examples of what it means or what it looks like to live by faith. And knowing what faith is and what faith is not is crucial to our souls because our salvation is a salvation that is by faith. So we better know what it is and what it isn't. What is the essence of faith? Verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And I'm going to take the second part of that first and then we'll look at the first part. The conviction of things not seen. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God is invisible. God is unseen. And so the question becomes, is there any evidence, is there any visible evidence of this unseen and invisible God that would indicate to us that he is real and that he exists? And the very first place that the writer of Hebrew goes to is creation. It is almost as if he is saying, are you kidding me? You think the problem here is lack of evidence of the unseen God? Look at creation. We know it didn't just pop into existence all by itself. And this isn't the first time that scripture calls our attention to creation. It is kind of an ironclad bottom line evidence of the reality and existence of God. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words, where their voice is not heard. If you're in creation, you can't escape creation. (laughs) It is everywhere, and it screams the glory of God. Or Romans 1, just before the passage we read today, What can be known about God, what can be known about God? Paul says this, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made How clear is this creation testimony of the glory of God? Paul says it is enough so that they are without excuse. Pity the poor fool that stands before God and says, Oh, I didn't know you existed. (laughs) It's like, are you kidding me? (laughs) The glory of God is everywhere. And I won't get this quote right, but I'll get close. John Calvin, who said, we live in the theater of God's glory, blindfolded. There's no lack of evidence of God's existence. The lack is with us in failing uh, to see it. And then I wanted to share this quote from R.C. Sproul uh, because it's one of my favorites and it's R.C. Sproul. Uh, But he speaks to this, and this is what R.C. says, If anything exists now then there never could have been a time when there was nothing. Because the most fundamental axiom of all reason and science and philosophy is this. Out of nothing comes nothing. If there was ever a time when there was nothing, the only thing there could possibly be now is nothing, and there couldn't be anything else other than nothing, and nothing is not something. Nothing is not even a little something, not even a microscopic something, not even a subatomic something. It is nothing. And if there was ever a time when there was nothing, then there would be nothing now. So there always had to be a something, something that had the very power of being within itself, or nothing could possibly be. If I can try to summarize R.C.'s paragraph there, by looking at the something that we see, By our looking at the something that we see, we can deduce something about the something that is unseen. And so for a moment, what are some of the deductions that we can make about the something that is unseen by looking at the something that we see? First of all, the something that we don't see must have immense power. Look at the size of the universe. The something that made and upholds all of this must be a being of unimaginable power. The something that we don't see knows what beauty is. The world is beautiful. You have it in some of your Facebook posts. Oh, here's the ocean. Here's the mountains. Here's the Alps. Here's a flower. You know, here's our kitten. the, the, The world is beautiful. The unseen who made it all knows something about what beauty is. The something we don't see must have immense intellect. The variety and intricacy and delicate balance of everything speaks to design and intellect by that which is unseen. The something we don't see is not random or capricious. You don't toss a ball and half the times it falls to the ground and half of the time it goes up to the sky. Creation is not random or capricious. It is orderly, thoughtful, and methodical. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Faith lives in the reality of the invisible just as if it were as real as if it were visible. Faith acts in the context of the reality of the invisible and acts just the same as if the invisible were visible. The difference in the realities is not that one's real and one's not. It's not that the visible is real and the invisible is imaginary. No, the only difference is the visibility, not the reality. And this is not irrational, nor is it illogical. Faith is the conviction. Of things unseen, and faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is sure of something, it is confident of someone or something, maybe even someone or something that hasn't happened yet. Faith depends on it, faith relies on it, faith is counting on it with certainty. Or, again, for our purposes today, if I could put it into one word, I think that uh, at least a large part of the essence of faith is trust. That's what Bible-believing faith is. It is not just intellectual assent to reality or to facts. It is active trust. Faith depends on its object. Faith is relying on someone or something. Faith is counting on someone or something. That's what faith is. Now, how do we get that? What is it that causes or determines you to put your faith in someone or put your trust in something? Well, a little story from my early, early years as a minister. We were having a little problem Uh, with some of our nursery workers uh, not showing up and that in a small church about 30 people and so you can imagine that was painful I'd probably been out of seminary less than a year and awkward and uncomfortable and challenging and I thought well you know maybe I'll preach a sermon on uh, on you know being more reliable you know being more dependable so I went to my my concordance you know looked up the word Reliable or rely. Look, 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 look. Nothing. I said, okay, well, maybe dependable. Doesn't, you know, doesn't God want us to be dependable? Doesn't God want us to be people who can be counted on? Uh, you know. So I looked that up. Dependable, dependable, dependable. Nothing. I'm like, all right, come on, what am I missing here? Okay, there's nothing that exhorts us to be Dependable. There's nothing that exhorts us to be reliable. What is it? Let's try faithful. Let's try faithful. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, my goodness me. You know, 200 entries on being faithful, but primarily pointing to the faithfulness of God. That is the foundation of our trust. Why can we trust God? Why can we rely on God? Why can we depend on God? Because the Bible testimony is that he is faithful. He is trustworthy. My friends, this is why the scriptures are so vital. They are vital to us for building trust. Among other things, do you know what the Bible is? The Bible is a testimony of 2,000 years of God's faithfulness. Building a record of trust and confidence. Everything he says comes to pass. Everything he does is true. He is reliable. He is dependable. He can be counted on. And he proves it over a 2,000 year period. Oh, again and again and again and again. The significance of that is this. Trust is a function of performance over time. Trust is built by observing performance over time. That's why you trust your close friends and you don't trust strangers. The stranger might be a better person than your close friend, but you don't know that. You don't know who they are or what they are because you haven't seen them perform or behave over time. But as you see someone faithful over time, your trust and confidence builds. That's exactly the way it is with faith in God and the scripture is that testimony to to slay our doubts about God. He is faithful in, in everything that he does. And that's why reading the Bible just gives us that assurance. He said this and he did this. He promised this and he did this. He never fails doing everything that he says and promises. You can trust him. You can rely upon him. You can depend upon him. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I want to move from the essence of faith uh, to the object of faith. Faith and trust and dependence is, is always in someone or in something, and so fasten your seatbelts for this one, and then you can be unfasten them quickly. We are not saved by faith, and the OPC Presbytery took note uh, and questioned John Canalis for having this guy. We are not. We're not. We're not even saved by faith alone. Faith itself, isolated from whatever object that faith is in, is not in and of itself commendable. Everybody has faith. Everybody depends on someone or something. Everybody relies on someone or something. Some people say, I am smart. I can figure it out. I'm rich. I'm popular. People listen to me. I'm a good person. I trust that my being good will be good enough to get me safe passage from this life to the next and for eternity. A lot of people trust in themselves. That's That's what they're counting on. Some people trust in someone else. I trust in Buddha and his sayings. I trust in Muhammad and his teachings. I trust in Joseph Smith and his visions. Faith is never held up as an independent, commendable Virtue. So when it says in verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God, that statement is in the context of the Bible. And specifically, it's in the context of the book of Hebrews. And it is beyond dispute that when the writer says, without faith, it is impossible to please God, he undoubtedly means without faith in Jesus Christ, it is impossible to please God. Without faith in Christ, not just without faith in anything, so God doesn't, oh, your faith is great. You know, you have faith in this rock, but it's such great faith. Oh, God bless you, come on in. No, it's faith without faith in Christ. It is impossible to please God. And why is this? With whom is God pleased? In whom does God find his most pleasure? He even announced it in the Gospels. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God is eminently pleased in his Son. And that's why to live in any orbit that doesn't intersect with his son cannot please God. It is impossible. Or he takes no pleasure in anyone who does not take pleasure in his son. You see that? God takes no pleasure in anyone who does not take pleasure in his son. Because in his son... God is well pleased, and so attaching ourselves to Christ is essential to please God. Faith in Christ, trust in Christ, depending on Christ, relying upon Christ, which by the way kind of shouldn't be a big stretch because he's completely trustworthy, he's completely dependable, he's completely reliable, Look at the Old Testament. Look at the Gospels. All you come up with is this is a God I can trust because everything he says comes true, and this is his son upon whom I can rely because he not only sacrificed himself on the cross for my sins, he came back to life from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father, and intercedes for me because he loves me. And he gave himself up for me. What's not to trust? What's not to count on? What's not to rely on? Intellectual assent tells you that God is a judge. Faith builds an ark. Intellectual assent tells you that God is the author and creator of life. Faith raises the dagger and is about to plunge it into the breast of his one and only son on the altar of sacrifice. Intellectual assent believes God rewards those who follow him. Faith says no to the pleasures and riches and comforts of Egypt in order to be identified with the people who were viewed as the scum of the earth. Intellectual assent says, I believe God will not harm me. Faith walks into the fiery furnace, trusting God for the outcome. When I was growing up, 180 years ago, uh, one, of, one of the uh, Premier Daredevils was a high wire act, uh, the Wolundas. Some of you in this room, not many, but some will remember them, know them. Uh, Carl Wallenda, uh, his family, children, grandchildren, cousins, uh, all these Daredevil high wire acts. But they were not the first. A century earlier, in the mid-1800s, was a guy named Charles Blondin. He was known as the Great Blondin. And he was the first one to stretch a tightrope across Niagara Falls, from the United States side to the Canadian side. And it was over 1,000 feet long. And in June of 1859, Blondin announced he was going to walk the tightrope, no net, obviously, over the Niagara Falls gorge. 25,000 people assembled to watch him hopefully not plummet to his death. And so as they cheered, the great Blondin walked across the tightrope, got to the other side safely, walked all the way back, and arrived at his point of origin uh, safely. And over the next decade, it is recorded that Blondin repeated that feat over 300 times with all sorts of uh, twists and turns. Once, he made the trip blindfolded. Once, he made the trip carrying his manager on his back. And they have pictures of this. Even in the 1850s, you know, these fuzzy photos. (laughs) Once, there's a picture of him. He strapped a stove to his back, set it up in the middle, and cooked an omelet, and ate it, and then went went back. You know, just incredible stuff. You can hardly believe it, except there are pictures and eyewitnesses of, of the great Blondin. The story is told, probably apocryphal, because there's no record of this happening, uh, that he would walk the tightrope, sometimes pushing a wheelbarrow in front of him. And so one day he did that. He walks across, and the crowd goes nuts, cheering, and he takes the wheelbarrow 1,000 feet. They said it'd take about 20 minutes for him to make the trip uh, across to the other side. Crowd's cheering. And so he looks down at the crowd. Who believes that I can do that again? They go berserk. We believe, we believe. He says, "Okay, who's ready to get in the wheelbarrow? Dead silence. (laughs) And then finally, One little nine-year-old boy raises his hand. I'll get in. Intellectual assent says, with the devils, I believe that Christ exists. Christian faith gets in the wheelbarrow. Let's pray. Lord, we believe and we pray that you would help us our unbelief and give us that simple trusting saving faith to believe and trust who you are everything you have said everything you have done and everything that you have promised so that we would live to the praise of your glory and we ask father in jesus name